Good morning, my name is Esme and I'm a member at Morlands Church. The talk this morning is going to be on 2 Samuel chapter 3, verse 6 to 4, verse 12. We're just going to be reading chapter 4, 1 to 12. So that's 2 Samuel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. When Ishbosheth, son of Saul, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost courage, and all Israel became alarmed. Now Saul's son had two men who were leaders of raiding bands. One was named Baana, and the other, Rechab. They were sons of Rimon the Beerothite from the tribe of Benjamin. Beeroth is considered part of Benjamin because the people of Beeroth fled to Gitaim and have lived there as aliens to this day. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. Now Rechab and Baana, the sons of Rimon the Berethite, set out for the house of Isbosheth, and they arrived there in the heat of the day, while he was taking his noonday rest. They went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Baana slipped away. They had gone into the house while he was lying on the bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they travelled all night by the way of the Arabah. They brought the head of Isbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Isbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. David answered Rechab and his brother Baana, the sons of Rimon, the Berethite. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble, when a man told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? So David gave an order to his men and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Isbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Well, thank you very much, Esme, and uh, good morning, everybody. And uh, let me uh, encourage you to keep that passage open, and uh, we will uh, be looking at it in some detail. But there are some parts of the Bible that are easier to read, understand, preach, and apply than others, aren't there? If you want a quick, uplifting thought for the day, you probably wouldn't turn to 2 Samuel 3 and 4. If you're scratching your head for a word of encouragement to write in that card to a friend, you probably wouldn't come to 2 Samuel 3 and 4. If you want a nice, memorable Bible verse to embroider in a frame above your bed, you probably wouldn't turn to 2 Samuel 3 and 4. So what are we doing in this part of the Bible? Why are we, in fact, spending 
the majority of our time on this precious Sunday morning looking at this long and ancient text about the messy beginnings of a small kingdom in a faraway place 3,000 years ago. Well, it's a great story. Uh, it's brilliantly written. But what use is it to us? How will this story of plotting, intrigue, murder, vengeance, and the struggle for power in a time and place so remote from ours help us to live better lives this week? What good will this part of the Bible do us? Well, let me answer that question by reminding us that the purpose of this story and the purpose of the whole Bible of which it is a part is not to make us good people, but to show us a good king. That is, this is not a morality tale in which we are to identify the goodies and the baddies, the monsters and the heroes, and draw the moral lesson, which is usually try and be like the goodies and not like the baddies. In fact, no one in the story comes off as completely good, not even David in the end. No one has motives that are completely pure or makes decisions that are completely wise and good. Every player is realistically human, warts and all. And the narrator, perhaps to the modern reader's frustration, avoids spoon-feeding us moral judgments. And the only hero is God. It is not a morality tale. And the reason for this is that there is a bigger purpose at work here in 2 Samuel and across the Bible, which is not to make us good people, but to show us God's good king. The story of King David, as we helpfully saw in that uh, video of Becky and the children wearing those clothes, is to prepare the world for the coming of Jesus Christ. As we watch David's kingdom established way back then in ancient Israel, we are seeing a glimpse of the kingdom that God is going to bring about in Jesus. We're seeing that in contrast and in similarity. And so as we read the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, we are watching this set of clothes being stitched together that in the end are way too big for David to wear, but will fit Jesus perfectly. And what that means is that studying this part of God's word this morning is actually of crucial life and death importance to every single one of us. To all of us here in this building, to all of you at home uh, watching on your screen, it is of crucial significance because there is nothing more important in this life than knowing who really is king of this world and how we should relate to him. So can I encourage you, whatever kind of week you've had, however you're feeling about this passage, whatever you might be tempted to do in terms of multitasking as we work through it, can I invite you now, if you haven't already, to open your Bible and to give this your full attention and allow God to speak to us? Because we don't need a moral lesson this morning. Morality cannot save us. We don't need a quick, uplifting thought or a nice word of encouragement or a memorable verse to embroider on a frame above your bed. What we need is to know God's King, how he can save us from our sin, and how in the messiness of life, his kingdom is advancing. If we know those things, then all will be well. Well, it's a complex and detailed story. As we read chapter four, we're going right back to chapter three, verse six. And to help us, you'll find uh, three scenes on the outline. And all we're gonna do in each case is ask three simple questions. What are the main players doing? What is David doing? And what is God doing? 
And then at the end, we'll try and tie things together uh, with some lessons for us. First scene, then, is in 3.6 to 21, and I've called this political ambition and the kingdom. If I'd wanted to keep the pattern, I should have said political vanity and the kingdom, shouldn't I? Political ambition and the kingdom, 3.6 to 21. What is Abner doing, first of all? Well, verse 1 tells us that during the years of conflict between the houses of David and Saul, David grew strong, and Saul's house, under the leadership of Saul's last remaining son, Ishbosheth, grew weaker. But what has Abner, Saul's tough guy general, been up to during that time? Well, have a look at verse 6, where the narrator tells us, During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. This is a very helpful summary statement. It's also a rare glimpse that the narrator gives us into the motivations of one of the characters. Whatever else Abner does or says, and we'll see in a moment that he knows how to drop some good theology into his conversation, the narrator wants us to be clear what his motives are, that he is strengthening his own position. Abner, whatever else he does and says, is in it for Abner. Well, what triggers Abner's next move is Ishbosheth's accusation that he has slept with one of Saul's concubines, verse 7, which would have amounted to a political power grab. Notice there's no moral judgment here. A concubine is a sexual partner other than your spouse. is not a good thing in the Bible, but there's no moral judgment. This is not a morality tale. Abner doesn't directly deny the charge. Rather, he takes offense at Ishbosheth, verse 8, and uses this as a chance to finally break away from the weak and failing king and has done with the house of Saul. It is time, verse 9, to jump ship. Ishbosheth stands by pitifully and does nothing, and we're told why, verse 11, because he was afraid of him. And in that short line, we learn the truth of the political situation in Israel at this time that it's actually Abner who holds the power, and Ishbosheth is king in name only. But what I'd like you to notice is just how powerful Abner thinks he is. Look at verse 9 and 10 again. Notice the role that Abner sees himself playing in bringing about what God has promised. Abner believes that he is the one who can do what God promised to David long ago and transfer the kingdom, that he is the one who will establish David's house. Verse 9, may God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And then have a look at verse 12. Look how powerful Abner thinks he is. He thinks the whole land belongs to him. Then Abner sent messages on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will bring all Israel over to you. Well, David agrees to this on one condition, which you'll see in the heart-rending passage about his wife in verses 13 and 14, which we haven't got time to go into. Abner then heads to Hebron, where David greets him and his men with a celebratory feast. So Abner's plan is a great success. This powerful man sees himself as very much in control. He's a man of action. He gets things done. No doubt, as he and his 20 men left David's presence, they did, not just with full stomachs from the feast, but with a huge smile on their faces. Here is a brilliant soldier 
a strategist, a politician, a kingmaker, and he's just positioned himself in exactly the right place to become a key member of David's court. What can possibly go wrong? Well, that's what Abner's doing. What is David doing in this, in this scene? Well, the surprise is the generous, gracious welcome that Abner receives, both for himself and his plan. David's first word to Abner, verse 13, that his plan is good, presumably because David hopes it will deliver the kingdom without further bloodshed. And then he throws this generous, gracious party for a man who, remember, has been his sworn enemy for the last seven years. There are no threats, no recriminations. And notice that emphasis on the word peace. David sends him away in peace. So here is a glimpse of the kingdom that Nathan reminded us of earlier, a kingdom of peace, a kingdom where enemies are welcomed in. And in verse 21, Abner calls King David to his face, sorry, calls David king to his face. It's an easy detail to miss, but this is the first time anyone in the book has called David king to his face. And here is a taste of the character of that king. David's kingdom is going to be a kingdom where former enemies are welcomed, where, in New Testament terms, repentant sinners find peace and mercy. Well, what is God doing? We're covering a lot of ground this morning. We're going quickly. I hope I'm not going too quickly. But glance back to 3 verse 1, if you've got your Bible open, where we're given a bird's eye view of what is happening. 3 verse 1. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. As we grow in our skill at Bible reading, we've got to look out for these key verses. Because the narrator doesn't spoon feed us, but he does give us these little glimpses of what is going on. And in this verse, we're given the trajectory of the next couple of chapters. We know that the story we are listening to is the last gasp of Saul's failed kingship and the final climactic rise of David to an unchallenged position. And therefore, what this verse is doing is reminding us of who is bringing that change about. We've just seen, haven't we, that Abner thinks it's him. Of course, there is a sense in which his decisions and actions are bringing David's rise about. But chapter 3, verse 1 reminds us and roots us into a big theme of the book that behind those human decisions, behind that human power, with all their mixed motives, is actually the great reality of God's power and his promise unfolding. Behind all the political intrigues and violence and power grabbing and sexual sin of this chapter, God is working through human agents, even sinful ones, to bring about his purposes. We'll come back to that in a few minutes. Well, that's the first scene, political vanity and the kingdom. Let's turn to the second one now, personal vengeance and the kingdom, 322 to 39. What is Job doing is the question now. The previous scene ended very deliberately with that word peace, shalom, which you may know means more in the Old Testament than the absence of hostilities. But it's about well-being, wholeness, harmony. And so here is a situation where all is well between David and Abner and all is well in Israel. 
But now Joab enters the scene. Verse 22. Just then David's men and Joab returned from a raid and brought with them a great deal of plunder. But Abner was no longer with David in Hebron because David had sent him away and he'd gone in peace. When Joab and all the soldiers with him arrived, he was told that Abner, son of Ner, had come to the king and that the king had sent him away and that he had gone in peace. Well, this paragraph draws our attention to the fact that David and Abner departed in peace. Three times in three verses, we're told it. And this is the first step of establishing David's innocence over what happens next. But it also establishes a contrast. Joab, as we saw last week, is not a man of peace. He's a man of violence, who solves problems with that all-devouring sword. And the last thing he wants is peace with Abner. Verse 24. So Joab went to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why did you let him go? Now he is gone. You know Abner, son of Ner. He came to deceive you and observe your movements and find out everything you are doing. Now this Joab character is going to play a big role in the book. He's fiercely loyal to David. And there's no doubt some truth to his claim to be concerned for David's safety. But like Abner... He is a man of mixed motives and self-interest. And we can probably assume that he wants to eliminate his new rival to the position of David's number two. The narrator, however, reminds us twice, verse 27, and again in verse 30, 30 for clarity, that his real motivation is personal vengeance. And this is to do with what we saw last week. So look at verse 26. Then Joab sent, left David and sent messengers after Abner, and they brought him back from the well of Sirah, but David did not know it. Now, when Abner returned to Hebron, Job took him aside into the gateway as though to speak with him privately. And there, to avenge the blood of his brother Asahel, Joab stabbed him in the stomach and he died. And then verse 30, in case we haven't made the connection, Joab and his brother Abishai murdered Abner because he'd killed their brother Asahel in the battle at Gibeon. Abner had killed Asahel by stabbing him in his stomach with a spear. But you remember that was in the context of war and having warned him several times. Now, with the word peace still echoing in our ears, Joab kills Abner by stabbing him in the stomach in cold blood, having tripped him. Personal vengeance and the kingdom. Well, what is David doing? Well, what David does is very significant. I want you to look carefully with me. What he does is he distances himself completely from Joab and from his crime. It is clearly a matter of great significance to the narrator and to our understanding of David's kingdom that he establishes his complete innocence and he completely refutes any guilt connected to Abner's murder. We see this because the narrator actually gives us five things David does in quick succession to make his point. He almost overstates the case. Just notice them quickly with me. Verse 28. Firstly, he asserts his own innocence in the clearest way possible. Secondly, he condemns Joab and his descendants with his horrible fivefold curse in verse 29. He doesn't kill him, but he curses him. Thirdly, he holds a massive state funeral for Abner with himself as chief mourner, verse 31 to 32. Fourthly, he writes the second lament in the book, honoring Abner 
restoring his reputation while implicitly putting down Joab. Finally, he goes on a very dramatic and public fast, verse 35. And what is David doing here? Why is he making such a big deal about his innocence in this matter? Why is he rubbing Joab's nose in it? Why is he honoring Abner so much? Well, there's no doubt that much of this was genuine. But it was also a huge publicity exercise, wasn't it? And it has the effect of establishing David's innocence while also uniting the people around him. So look again at verse 28, which sums up the point. I and my kingdom are forever innocent before the Lord concerning the blood of Abner, son of Ner. It is very, very significant that David's kingdom will be established not by violence, not by bloodshed. He's going to keep his hands clean while he's on the way to the throne. And two other details reinforce this. Firstly, notice the phrase King David in verse 31. And again, something that's very easy to miss, but very significant. David has been identified as king before. But this is the first formal linking of his name with the royal title anywhere in the Bible. And it happens in the midst of this demonstration of his complete innocence. Secondly, did you notice as Esme read that phrase, all the people repeated between 31 and 37, and actually seven times in the ESV. Verse 31, all the people with him. Verse 32, all the people wept. Verse 34, all the people wept again. Verse 36, all the people took note and were pleased with him. Verse 37, so on that day, all the people and all Israel knew that the king had no part in the murder of Abner, son of Ner. So what David is doing is he is not just protesting his innocence, but he is establishing a kingdom that is free of guilt because it's the kingdom of God. David knows he must come into the kingdom, not man's way, but God's way. David protests with all his heart against the sin of Abner's murder, and yet it's Abner's death that actually brings Israel together under David as king. Which brings us to our third question, what is God doing here? Well, the scene concludes with a statement that David makes about Admer, which also functions as a final put-down to Joab. But what's even more surprising is what David says here about himself. Have a look at verse 38 and 39 with me. Then the king said to his men, Do you not realize that a prince and a great man has fallen in Israel this day? And today, though I am the anointed king, I am weak, and these sons of Zeruah are too strong for me. May the Lord repay the evildoer according to his evil do deeds. The word weak there could mean weak, and it could mean gentle, as the ESV translates it. It could mean either, but the context, I think, makes it unlikely that it should be translated as weak. Because if you think about it, David is in a very strong position. He's now king over a united people who, we're told, think everything he does is good. He's thoroughly put Joab and his brother in their place, and it's unlikely, I think, that he would admit to being weak and they being too strong. And I think that misses the point. And yet he is making a comparison, isn't he, between himself and these brothers. 
And I think this is a very important and stunning way to end the chapter. David is saying that he is gentle. And he's contrasting that characteristic with their forcefulness and violence. And you'll know if you've been with us for the last few weeks that that gentleness taps into a key theme of the book and reminds us that actually none of this has been David's doing at all, but God's. David has not grasped the kingship through strength or violence. He's not gone about it that normal human way of doing things. But he has trusted God to fulfill his promises his way. He stood by innocently while others have done evil things, which nevertheless have raised him to the kingship. He is gentle. And this is something we've seen over and again with David. Being gentle does not mean he is not strong. No, this is the Goliath slayer. This is the one who strikes down his enemies with a word. But remember also how he refused to kill Saul a couple of times in 1 Samuel, how he refused to grasp the kingdom. That's the sense in which he is gentle. And that is because, as God promised, through Hannah's song way back in chapter 1 of 1 Samuel, that it's God who will do it, that he will give strength to his king. And David is stating here that he agrees with Hannah's worldview that human power and strength, which the normal way of getting things done in this world, from building a woodpile to building an empire, is not the way God's kingdom is going to get built. So the lesson at the end of the second scene reinforces the lesson at the end of the first scene, that in the midst of intrigue and politics and self-interest and powerful men seizing things to themselves and violent men taking refuge, and even through the unwitting action of those who oppose the kingdom, through lies and deceit and all the sordid schemes of men, God is quietly, sovereignly, righteously fulfilling his promise to establish his kingdom. And this means it's going to take faith, isn't it, to put your confidence in a kingdom like this, a kingdom that is established through gentleness. Well, let's turn to the third and final scene, plotting and violence and the kingdom in chapter four. We've already read this, so let's just ask the same three questions again. Firstly, what are Bayana and Rechab doing, these two evil men that we meet here? Well, with Abner now gone, the peace deal falls through, which is presumably why we're told that Ishbosheth loses courage and all Israel becomes alarmed. Verse 1. Without Abner's protection, Ishbosheth's end seems inevitable. But it comes about in the most brutal fashion in the book so far. Everything about this cries out that it's evil, that it's wicked, cold blooded murder in the middle of the day at siesta time, in his own house, in his own bed. You don't get more dastardly than that. And the details of these two brothers, you may have noticed, we're given an extraordinary amount of detail in verse 2 and 3. All of that detail is there to establish that these are men from Saul's own side. So Saul, when his kingdom finally ends, it ends from his own men. 
And that's paralleled, isn't it, with Saul's own end. He died by falling on his own sword. Here is the house of Saul finally falling on its own sword with no encouragement from David. The other important parallel with Saul's death is that Ishbosheth's death is then reported to David by people who think he's going to be absolutely thrilled because it's advancing his kingdom another step further. They even use that now familiar theological justification, presenting this horrific murder as a gift, as good news, as gospel. Verse 8, they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, here is the head of Ishbosheth, son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to take your life. This day the Lord has avenged my lord the king against Saul and his offspring. They're thinking man's way, aren't they? But these two thugs have fatally miscalculated the character of the king. And so let's turn to our second question. What is David doing? Well, it's no surprise now, if we've been reading this from chapter 1, David's response now completes a pattern that we've seen three times since chapter 1. Someone brings him news of a violent death, which they think will please him because it advances the kingdom, and he, he responds in a surprising way to the killers. Notice now how he counters their murderous theological justification with his own truth, verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Berna, the sons of Rimon the Berothite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of all trouble. David puts it on public record one last time that he has no need of thugs like this to advance his kingdom. Why? Because it's the Lord who has delivered him out of trouble. Yes, Saul may have threatened his life back in 1 Samuel, but every time it was the Lord who preserved it. Well, this threefold pattern is making the same point over and over again. It's clearly important that we grasp it. That even though each killing moves David a step closer to the throne that God has promised, David himself will get there through righteousness, through innocence, through peace. David sought none of these deaths. He celebrates none of them. And he persecutes, he punishes their perpetrators. David is free of guilt and he'll come into his kingdom by gentleness and righteousness, not by strength and violence. And I wonder if you notice there is a tremendous liberty about David at this point, isn't there? He doesn't have to get his hands dirty to advance the kingdom. He doesn't want people sneaking up on his enemies in the gate of the city and stabbing them. He doesn't need it. That's not how God's going to do it. But at the same time, notice he's not passive. He's not standing by and doing nothing. A few weeks ago, we saw that he's strategizing and planning and thinking and acting because he knows that trusting in God's sovereignty does not mean doing nothing. But he will act in a way that is in keeping with God's character and leave the rest to God. And as we'll see in a moment, that is a very significant truth for us to grasp. Well, let's ask one last time, what is God doing uh, for the last uh, little bit of this scene. It's worth saying, in case you're a bit sick of all this bloodshed, as someone in the week uh, said to me they were, that from next week, well, I can't promise an end to the bloodshed and violence, but next week things are going to get more positive. As we see David finally, after a long and torturous road that began all the way back in 1 Samuel 16, finally 
become king over all Israel. And so we need to look carefully now at how this final step of the journey ends. Look at verse 12, first of all. So David gave an order to his men, and they killed them. They cut off their hands and feet and hung the bodies by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in Abner's tomb at Hebron. Uh, someone was telling me that they reenacted this whole passage with their children in Lego uh, during the week, just to kind of get into the passage. I'd love to see what they did with this bit. But this brutal episode began, you may remember, at the deceptively peaceful pool of Gibeon in 2.12, where two sides, Israel and Judah, faced each other. It now ends with this horrific cluster of images of severed body parts by the pool of Hebron, the hands and feet of the murderers, the head of their victim. It's very much in keeping with the time in which it's set. And more significantly, at the very point in which David is about to begin his final road to the kingship, we see the kingdom of God emerging from a situation of chaos and murder that is characteristic of human affairs throughout history and throughout the world. We're seeing here a great contrast, aren't we, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And that's why the passage ends here on this gruesome note. It's sharpening our lens so we can see what a glorious kingdom it's going to be and how sordid the kingdoms of men really are. But to reinforce that contrast, there's one final detail. See, we're going to see in time that David's kingdom will also be all too human in the end. The book of 2 Samuel is really kind of divided into three parts. Uh, chapter 1 to 11, it's all good. Chapter 11 to around about 22, it's all bad. And then there's a bit of a postscript. So we will see that David's kingdom will go bad. But there's one final detail here to give us a hope of something better. I wonder if you notice as we read the passage that verse 4 interrupts the flow of the narrative by introducing us to Jonathan's son, Saul's grandson. Look at verse 4 again, which the NIV puts in brackets for us. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame in both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled, but as she hurried to leave, he fell and became crippled. His name was Mephibosheth. I'm looking forward to Becky giving us a memory verse with Ishbosheth and Mephibosheth. It would be quite a challenge for us, wouldn't it? But the details about Mephibosheth interrupt the flow of the story of Ishbosheth. So why does the narrator drop it in here, the divinely inspired narrator? Well, the obvious reason is to provide a historical note that Ishbosheth really is the last surviving realistic claimant to the throne. Mephibosheth is a child, probably around 12 now, and he's crippled. And that means he couldn't lead an army, and that means in this world he couldn't be king. And so the detail makes it clear that once Ishbosheth is dead, David has no other rivals. That's one reason it's there, but there's another reason too. This little verse, which really could have been just placed anywhere, it is placed at the halfway point between two moments in the story of David's life that shed light on it. 
I want to show you this very quickly. First in 1 Samuel 20, 14 to 17. The context here is David making a covenant of hesed, of unfailing love to Jonathan. And it concerns Jonathan's children. Have a look at it on the screen, 1 Samuel 20. Jonathan says to David, but show me unfailing kindness like that of the Lord as long as I live so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness, your hesed, from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So here is David and Jonathan's covenant. David promising to Jonathan that he will show ongoing kindness to his family. And then the second is in verse 9, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel 9, verse 7, where we see David welcoming Jonathan's son, Meshibotheth, into his family in keeping with that promise. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will eat always at my table. And so two moments concerning Jonathan's descendants, both in which David promises and then gives Hesed ongoing loving kindness and grace. And so halfway exactly between these two points in the bigger story of David's rise, chapter 4, verse 4, is here to remind us that there is another way in this world. There is another way of doing things. There is another kingdom. In the midst of all the vengeance and violence and vanity, there is mercy. There is everlasting love. There is a covenant-keeping king who welcomes all who put their trust in him to eat at his table forever. And so verse 4 is there to give us a glimpse, a little foretaste of the goodness and kindness and mercy and welcome of those who enter the kingdom that is built through gentleness, not by violence. Well, let's conclude then. And we're concluding not just these two chapters, but really this whole tortuous journey that has taken David from that ruddy-faced shepherd boy with his slingshot to the king of a united Israel. So I want to just spend a few minutes just pulling out some lessons from this passage, from this section. Next week, we're going to see him anointed, made into God's Christ for the third and final time, and his reign over Israel will truly begin. But the big lesson I think we're supposed to take away from all of this is that God has done it his way. In fulfillment of Hannah's song, back in 1 Samuel 2, David's rise to the throne in the midst of the mess and mayhem of human sin has not been by strength, but by God's sovereign power. So what I want to do to conclude is offer three very broad reflections on that lesson. And whether you're in a growth group or not, you can spend time drilling down into these during the week if you, if you wish. Three then, broad final thoughts from these first four chapters. God's work, our work, and Christ's work. Firstly, let's reflect on God's work. We've seen that God uses all means to bring about his perfect plan. Through murder, betrayal, sexual sin, deception, intrigue, cowardice, selfishness, cruelty, violence, vengeance. Those words really describe the T 
typical carnage of human history. And what we're seeing is that through that, God always works out his plan to build his kingdom. Now, what are we to do with that truth? Well, two things. Firstly, that truth is a rebuke to those who think they can progress the kingdom of, uh, oppose the progress of the kingdom of God. In Psalm 2, which we read earlier, God laughs at the idea. The very idea that human beings can stop the progress of the kingdom is laughable. In fact, the very things designed by man to oppose or slow or restrict the kingdom actually in God's sovereignty advance the kingdom. That's how great God is. That's how unstoppable it is. So it's a rebuke to any who feel they can oppose the kingdom. But it's also a comfort to the believer to know as we look at the mayhem of history, as we even get caught up in the chaos and cruelty of human history, to know that nothing can stop the advance of God's kingdom. Even terrible personal wickedness of men like Diana and Recap cannot stop God's sovereign plan to advance the kingdom of Christ. And so as you look around the world, and you see the anti-God advances of our liberal, atheist, materialistic culture, or the violence of Islam, or the empty morality of liberal Christianity, all thinking that they are somehow restricting the growth of the kingdom, actually nothing could be further from the truth. God is using these things in ways that we can't necessarily see to advance his kingdom. As Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 1, God has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, which is to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. That is God's work. That is what he is doing, and nothing and no one can stop it. And that is good news for us this morning, isn't it? As we think about our world it is good news to know that God's kingdom is coming. And in the midst of chaos and sin, it is progressing day by day. Well, secondly, what about our work? That great comforting belief in the sovereignty of God does not mean that we should be passive. And sort of as people used to say, let go and let God, not at all. But nor does it mean that we should use ungodly means to achieve gospel outcomes. This is one of the big lessons of these four chapters. Just as David trusted God to do his work his way, so we must never be tempted to take matters into our own hands to achieve success, even success for the kingdom, at the expense of righteousness. Another way of putting this is that actions in the name of Jesus must be done in keeping with the character of Jesus. We may be tempted, but we must never fall for the temptation to seek the advance of the kingdom by sinful or underhand methods. As Paul says of his own gospel ministry in 2 Corinthians 4, sort of acknowledging this temp temptation, he says we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. 
On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. And I think this gives us the same sense of liberty that I pointed out in David's life earlier. This faith in the sovereignty of God does not mean that we are passive. On the contrary, Christians know that God uses our means to build his kingdom. We know that we must often be the means to answering our own prayers. As Sally prayed earlier for the, 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 the Spur Conference, which is built around Matthew 9.38, Jesus' prayer to raise up workers for the harvest field. Even as we pray that prayer, we are seeking and encouraging our students and young people to be the answer to that prayer as they put themselves forward for gospel ministry. We must, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, work hard to set forth the truth plainly and so on. So God's sovereignty doesn't mean we're passive. But neither does it mean that we manipulate or we get our hands dirty to achieve a good outcome. We, we do what we do and we leave the results to God. And his kingdom marvelously gets built and all the credit goes to him. Well, finally, God's work, our work, we finish with Christ's work. Because there is one place where all of these themes converge, and that is Christ's work in the cross. And if there's one thing to carry on mulling over and reflecting on in the week ahead, it's here. Where better to see the sovereignty of God at work in and through the wickedness of men that in the betrayal and murder of the crucifixion of Jesus, the son of David, where better to see a profound trust in God to do his work, his way, than in Jesus submitting himself <clears throat> to the will of God, submitting himself at the same time to the will of sinful man, where better to see it than in the betrayal and murder of the cross? These four chapters in which God is raising David to his throne without the guilt of bloodshed, but in the midst of bloodshed, are a glimpse of the kingdom that God is bringing about through Jesus. Ultimately, Jesus is going to step into these clothes prepared by David. And as he does, we see a man submitting to the violence of men. And he does it in order to welcome his enemies who will eat at his table, receiving grace after grace, for all eternity in the kingdom of God. And so I want to conclude with these words of the Apostle Peter about God's true king. That he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that ultimately it is on the cross that we see the gentleness of Jesus that leads to his victory over evil. And we pray that we might be people of faith, people who can see that truth, people who can trust in that kingdom that is built your way. 
And we pray that we might be people who are part of the growth of that kingdom. We thank you that you do not use... Sorry, thank you that you do use violence, self-interest and wickedness to establish your kingdom. But that your kingdom is one of righteousness and peace supremely seen in Jesus. And so we pray that you'd forgive us those times that we've sought to do your work by ungodly means. We pray that we might trust you to advance Christ's hidden kingdom your way. And we pray that each one of us will revel today in the welcome we receive in your kingdom of mercy and grace. Amen.